Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Well, welcome to the Jason and the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and thank you so much for joining me. I love doing this, love having these conversations. I'm thrilled that you would join me, and I'm excited to have this next conversation because Greg Jarrett, uh, not only one of my favorite people, he's just, he's really, he's a good guy, does great research, appreciate his uh, analysis along the way, and so we're going to have a good discussion. He's got a new book out. Um, it really is compelling and something that, you know, historically we should all be paying attention to. So I look forward to talking to Greg Jarrett and uh, talking a little bit about his book and everything else that's going on. Uh, we'll give you some thoughts on the news just briefly. Highlight the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then, uh, like I said, have the conversation with Greg Jarrett. But uh, first of all, I want to talk about I know it was last week. But I'm just still thrilled about the debate that happened. I thought it was a really good exercise in understanding who did what, how they did it, what they believed, what they didn't believe. You know, it's funny because they said, oh, uh, Vice President Mike Pence had the most time at 12 minutes. And, you know, uh, somebody else, I think uh, Tim Scott was down near the bottom. He had only like seven minutes. And it is interesting how you do two hours of a debate and then somebody like Ron DeSantis had like 10 minutes, 30 seconds or something, you know, something like that. At the end of the day, it's still pretty rapid fire um, when you're tackling world politics. But I thought Fox News and I work for Fox News. I get it. But I thought it was very well done. And I think they did they gave us the best exposure. Now, candidly, my own personal take some people probably shouldn't be on that stage. Probably time to hang up their cleats. But you know what? Uh, as we turn the corner into September, uh, at the end of the month, I believe it's September 27th, we're actually going to have the Fox Business Debate. It's going to be at the Presidential Library, the Reagan Presidential Library. Again, another great exposure. Big question. Will Donald Trump show up? Will he not show up? Uh, I hope he does. I think he needs to be injected into this I don't want to ever give Joe Biden or anybody else running for a political office to an excuse to miss debates. I think if you're going to be the leader of the free world, you're going to represent your party in the general election, you need to show up at the debates. Uh, if you're way out in front, then prove why you're way out in front. If you can't beat that other part of the crowd, then hey, you know. But I have no doubt that Donald Trump is still polling exceptionally well. But you know what? You need to show up and go to the debates. That's just my personal take. There's nothing personal against Donald Trump. I just think that our process as a republic uh, is better served. If we're going to be a representative uh, government, you have to be able to hear from these leaders in small spurts. And don't worry about some 30-second bite or some jab that's going to be landed. Get out there. Prove that you're the leader. That's that's my that's my take on it. Um, so that's the big news. It's still consuming everything that's being here. 
I do want to mention, and I've mentioned this a couple times in the podcast, I got to mention it again. I still really feel for the people of Maui. The numbers are stunning. They change on an almost a daily basis. But I can't imagine that devastation there. I, I just, you know, I've been there multiple times. I've walked those streets in Lahaina. I've eaten at prison pizza. I've eaten at the whole bunch of restaurants, shopped in those shops that are just literally obliterated. And an untold number still of people that were killed. The biggest wildfire death uh, number in the history of the United States of America. Been some controversies, some people pushing back on should or shouldn't Congress do an investigation. Of course they should. It's the biggest loss of life in a wildfire ever. And you're not going to do an investigation. Of course you have to do that. Do it in a bipartisan way. There should be a lot of curiosity and making sure that we never, ever have this problem again. Was it the electric company uh, that was pouring money into going green as opposed to taking out the underbrush that caused? I don't know, but we need to know. And not only do the local authorities have to do this, but I do believe it requires Congress to come in and push the envelope as well. When I was the chairman of the Oversight Committee, we dove in and looked at the Flint water problem. Was it a local issue that happened with local things? Yes. Did the federal government need to come in and bring the Republican governor and the Democratic uh, uh, mayor and the Democrats uh, there uh, in, in, in the state legislature? Do we need to like understand how we got into that place? Yes. Is the country in Michigan better off for having gone through that pro- process? Absolutely. We had subpoena authority. We had the ability to, to to pull those people together, unlike anybody else, because there were tens of thousands of people, U.S. citizens in Michigan that had this problem. I'd like to see a follow-up and see where we're at today. Did that Flint water and all that money that American taxpayers poured into this, has it solved the problem? Are there people still drinking leaded products uh, or leaded byproducts uh, in their water? And Hawaii, you need to think, is this a problem on the big island of Hawaii? What about Kauai? What about Lanai? What about other parts of Maui? Is this an ongoing problem? All things that need to be flushed out. That, to me, is government being responsible. In this nation, we are different. We are self-critical. We do go in and look at these things under the hood. We don't just brush them aside. And certainly not when you've had up to a thousand people still, you know, dead, or is the number a hundred? Whatever it is, it's not acceptable. It's just not acceptable to have that many missing, that many dead, and something that was so avoidable. It literally wiped this town off the map, and um, the devastation. It really does bother me. So that's the news. Let's transition to something a little bit lighter. And let's talk about the stupid, because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. All right, I got to go to this story that I saw on foxnews.com. They call it this uh, wedding drama. Young boy wears white to wedding and drama erupts. I cannot believe that this happened. I mean, this (laughs) this is so silly. It's so out of control. But evidently it was a, hey... Uh, don't anybody wear white to our wedding. But evidently, um, for for some young person wore white, and they went crazy. Quote, 
The reception was going well until I noticed my wife walking over to the bathroom with her face held in her hands. He explained that when he went to check on her, he found her sitting on the floor with mascara running down her cheeks. Quote, I asked what was wrong and she told me that one of our nephews was wearing white jeans and a white bow tie and everything went off the rails from there. This nephew, her sister's son, was six years old and somehow that destroyed her wedding. If you're... if. I'm sorry, but that's just outright stupid. If that's going to destroy your wedding, if that's going to put you in this place where you can't, uh, come on, come on, really? That is a crazy story. And then the next one, I don't know, on a big world stage, probably even funnier to me, kind of stupid, but this would be Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen, of course, I missed this, I guess, when it happened in real time, so I'm a little behind on this one, but she is the treasury secretary. No, she'd gone over to China. And she, and this is the headline that's coming out of The Guardian. Janet Yellen inadvertently ate hallucinogenic mushrooms in China and started a trend. This is what she she told uh, CNN, evidently. Quote, I was not aware that these mushrooms had a hallucinogenic properties. I learned that later. Yes, the, tre- the Treasury sec- Secretary started a trend and a craze in China, craze in China, evidently for a magic mushroom dish that is called—I can't pronounce—but it, it translates in English to "sea hand blue." <laughs> I don't know what was, but evidently she was spotted eating this fungi that um, is known to be a hallucinogenic uh, while she was in Beijing. This happened back in July, and she said, "Quote." I went with this large group of people, and the person who arranged our dinner did the ordering. There was a delicious mushroom dish. I was not aware that these mushrooms had hallucinogenic properties. I learned that later. End quote. Ah, good job. I I don't know what our Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is like on hallucinogenic mushrooms, but um, that probably had to be more interesting than... Her without the magic mushrooms. Not that I recommend that. Let's not be doing that, anybody. But that does strike me as a little bit stupid, a little bit funny, and kind of cute along the way, too. Along nobody got hurt, and she didn't spill some top secret, uh, you know, classified information, but aye, aye, aye. All right, let's transition now. Uh, Greg Jarrett, like I said, really good friend. You see him a lot on Hannity. He's been with Fox for a long time. Um, and he's written this cool new book, and he does great job in his legal analysis. So let's get Greg Jarrett on the phone. Hey, Jason, how are you? Greg, so good to catch you. I really do appreciate you joining me. Well, it's my pleasure. I always uh, have a good time talking about uh, legal issues and political ones as well with you. Well, you've been you've become a good friend. I mean, one of the benefits here joining the Fox family is uh, getting to know you better and love your analysis, your passion for what you do, and um, and you know it, it's uh, you've had a remarkable journey and you've authored some really important books. I want to talk about the books for a moment, and then I want to get more into your background, and then um, and then we got some rapid questions for you because, you know, I don't care how much legal analysis you've done. I don't know if you're ready for the rapid questions. 
<laughs> okay, I can probably handle some some of them. <laughs> um, that's all we want. We just want A for effort. But uh, Trial of the Century is your latest uh, book to come out. Uh, congratulations. I've started it. I love the cover of it. Um, Thank you. It's, uh, you know, you've been a New York Times bestselling author, but uh, this Trial of the Century, um, what's it about and why did you write this book? Well, I was a teenager when I grabbed a book off my father's shelf uh, by the great Irving Stone, a wonderful writer. And it was a biography on Clarence Darrow. And I started reading it. The more I read it, the more I admired deeply uh, Darrow's commitment to uh, justice, to fairness. He became known as the attorney for the damned because he took on cases that challenged popular opinion. And, you know, he was an iconoclast. He despaired the dangers of conformity and social control and government intrusion. Uh, and he upheld the right to individualism and self-determination. Those are things that we cherish today and are in jeopardy today. And towards the end of the book, he writes about uh, the trial of the century, uh, the Scopes monkey trial in, work in which our civil liberties and free speech rights uh, were at risk. Um, and it was a fascinating trial. So I went to the courthouse a couple of years ago in Dayton, Tennessee, and I, I gained access to the dusty archives and obtained uh, the original trial transcript. And, and the more I read the trial, the more I thought, you know, people need to learn about this because again it's about what we hold so dear free speech and uh, the indispensable proposition that no one should be told how to think now it, the case itself not everybody knows what the scopes monkey case was about but kind of what was the what were the two sides what were the positions of the two sides going into this case well, after World War I, America sort of turned inward, uh, and this great fundamentalist movement swept the nation. And, and the fervor was so intense that the fundamentalist leader, William Jennings Bryan, who'd been a three-time presidential nominee for the Democrats, convinced states to start banning books that he felt uh, were a threat to the Bible. So science books began getting tossed out of schools. But wait a sec, uh, Greg, the, the party of science was a... Yeah, I know. <laughs> you got to love the irony there lost on no one. <laughs> and uh, in particular, Bryant took aim at evolution, which he thought denied the story of the divine creation in the Bible, which it, it actually does not. They're harmonious. Um, but in... Tennessee, Bryant got a law passed that made it a crime for a school teacher to teach evolution out of a textbook that was state approved that had a subchapter on evolution. And, you know, within a, about a week or two, uh, John Scopes, a 25 year old school teacher, was promptly arrested and criminally charged. And sitting in Chicago in his law office, Clarence Darrow was incensed. He was angry and he volunteered to defend Scopes for free because 
William Jennings Bryan had joined the prosecution team to convict Scopes. So right. it set up the trial of the century, this titanic clash between two epic figures. What, uh, in writing it, doing the research, you know, I've seen a movie on this. I haven't read a book like yours. I'm going to read it, The Trial of the Century that from from Greg Jarrett here. But what what uh, what's, is there anything in particular that jumped out to you, that surprised you, that you learned along the way? Well, the movie you refer to is based on a Broadway play back in the 1950s. It was a 1960 movie called Inherit the Wind, but that's a fictionalized version of the trial. Um, and, and, you know, as I examine the trial transcript, fact is sometimes more fascinating right. than Hollywood's fiction. Right. And, and so, you know, the I mean, Daryl arrives in town, muted reception. Brian arrives in town and they strike up the band. Thousands of people have gathered to cheer him on. So Darrow knew he was stepping into the lion's den. The judge was biased against him. Uh, it was the judge was an ordained minister, don't you know? Yeah. And uh, the jury was stacked with devoted uh, churchgoers, uh, only one of whom knew anything about evolution. And every time, you know, Clarence Darrow tried to present the defense case, the judge would stop him. So it was a totally unfair trial. And the amazing part of it is at, towards the end, Darrow is down but not defeated, and he does something extraordinary. He calls his nemesis, William Jennings Bryan, the prosecutor, to the witness stand as an expert on the Bible. <laughs> and the judge said, you can't do that. He's the prosecutor. <laughs> but Darrow was counting on something. He knew Bryan, and he knew Bryan's ego would never be able to stop him from taking the witness stand. Sure enough, Bryan stands up and says, Your Honor, I have nothing to fear. I, you know, I want to tell the world the truth of the Bible. And uh, the judge says, all right, but we're adjourning this out of the courtroom because there's so many people jammed in here. I'm worried about the floor collapsing. So <laughs> he, he sends the trial outdoors to a platform left over from Fourth of July festivities and there are bleachers. And I show a picture in the book. We have about 40 photographs. And there is this enormous throng of thousands of people. And there is Bryant and Darrow up on the platform. And Darrow begins this eviscerating cross-examination of Bryant. Hmm. This is going to be a good read. And you know what? It's been a while since I've seen the movie. So I'm excited to read the book. It's Trial of the Century. Um it, it, this is going to be good and a good summer read. Um, but let's go back to your passion for the law and for justice. I mean, I see on Hannity uh, a lot in particular, but throughout Fox News, and you you, you got a passion and uh, and a set of principles that I think is uh, is very attractive to a lot of the audiences. So let's go back to little Greg Jarrett. Like, tell us start with you know where you were born and and kind of walk us through your journey on how you and I ended up crossing, path, cro crossing paths. 
Well, I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, my father was, like Darrow, a trial attorney. And, you know, I had some interest in it because I was, you know, I would go with my father on weekends down to his law office. He taught me how to uh, research cases uh, back in the day without computers. You know, it was called shepherdizing cases. It was a long, laborious <laughs> process. Um but I would cut school now and again and watch him try cases in, in front of the uh, the jury. And, you know, I was very impressed. I loved and adored my father. Uh, but it really wasn't until I read the book on Clarence Darrow that this sort of light came on in my head and said, you know, I'd like to be like Darrow. <laughs> I had no illusions that I could ever be anything near a Clarence Darrow. But I thought, you know what, a, a law career would be a profitable uh, and important pursuit. And by the time I got to law school, uh, I really had a leg up because my father at the dinner table, you know, would sort of cross examine my sister and myself. Uh, and I, you know. I got the feel for the rules of evidence and what it felt like to sit perched on a yeah. witness chair. Right. You know, my father would uh, sometimes uh, say, uh, all right, state your name and spell it for the record. You know, and we'd all chuckle. But, you know, having a conversation with my father really was like being cross-examined. And so... At any rate, I, I think I had sort was of... Was that at the uh, dinner table? I mean, was that everywhere? You get a little... Hey, Greg... <laughs> Let's talk about those green beans. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, uh, you know, I would sort of stretch the rules of evidence and uh, and honesty uh, as teenagers are wont to do. But, um, you know, he was a wonderful, loving man. Uh, and he taught me a lot about the law. So by the time I got to law school, I mean, I, you know, I, I had a leg up on, on others. And sure enough, I... I I got a perfect score on the evidence exam in, in, in law school because my father had taught me so much about it. But And then I started out as a trial lawyer in San Francisco, a defense attorney, tried uh, you know some jury cases and so forth. And then I just uh, accidentally fell into television. That, well, what was that accident? <laughs> a buddy of mine was auditioning for a, you know, a television show, you know, UHF uh, TV show that nobody watched uh, that was live from seven in the morning uh, till nine in the morning. And um, he convinced me also to uh, audition. And, you know, just as a lark, I did. I ended up getting the job. Uh, my friend is still a dear friend of mine. And, you know, he had a successful career elsewhere. Uh, but um, one thing led to another. I did local news for several years. Uh, and then for TV came along. I auditioned and uh, got the job. I was with Court TV for eight years. And we covered all kinds of, you know, trials, the OJ Simpson case, notably. So I was in Los Angeles for nine months inside the courtroom and then outside anchoring the coverage of it and you know the menendez brothers case the rodney king uh trials uh you know the list goes tell, on and tell on. us about remind us about that time what was i mean 
you and a whole set of reporters were parked down there for a long period of time. Now, I guess you had somewhat, it was somewhat advantageous, I would guess, kind of being from Southern California. What was that atmosphere like? You know, it was, it was very intense. And it was this sort of circus-like atmosphere, very much like the Scopes Monkey Trial. You know, back in 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee, uh, journalists the world over converged on this tiny town. It was the first trial in America ever broadcast live on radio. There were newsreel cameras set up in the back of the courtroom and a plane waiting at the end of each uh, day to fly up the newsreel film to Chicago, where it was then distributed uh, in uh, movie theaters everywhere. And you know, so the O.J. Simpson case was very much like that, except in the television age. Uh, and, you know, there weren't that many cable channels back, you know, in the 1990s. And Court TV sort of cornered the market in covering the O.J. Simpson case, along with CNN. And so, you know, it was... It was an interesting experience, especially having been from Los Angeles. It became inevitably a race case. And, you know, for the defense, that was an advantage because at that time, you know, Los Angeles was this sort of cauldron of racial unrest. And the defense took advantage of that. Uh, And O.J. Simpson was... Uh, acquitted. And, you know, I've made no bones about it. I've never seen such overwhelming evidence of guilt in my life. Um, But yet uh, our system of justice doesn't always work perfectly. In in retrospect, why do you think that was? What what, is it just a racial thing or or was it, hey, the uh, prosecution or the um, the the cops were too tough and difficult? What uh, was it? The glove? What, What was the tipping point? Well, several things. You had a lousy judge in Lancedo who permitted a bunch of evidence that the defense wanted to come into the trial, and, and that was a huge mistake. You had a very charismatic, flamboyant defense attorney in Johnny Cochran, who personally, you know, I got to know and was a wonderful person. He passed away far too early. Yeah. But most of all, Uh, Gil Garcetti, who was the district attorney, made a huge mistake at the outset by transferring the case downtown where his office was, because I think he wanted to, uh, you know, appear in front of television cameras at his convenience. Well, that's it. That was a stupid mistake. Uh, If the case had been tried in its proper venue out in the, you know, Santa Monica Van Nuys area, O.J. Simpson would have been convicted. Uh, he was found liable in the civil trial in in that particular venue. But Garcetti moved it downtown. You get a downtown jury in the 1990s. They hated cops. And, you know, Johnny Cochran knew that. And so he made it a cop case. And the jurors were not the kind of people who trusted police at that time in L.A. Um, and so there there was the acqu- the acquittal. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more right after this. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back 
along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. But, you know, OJ is still out there looking for the real killers, so I, I hope he gets on there. On golf courses everywhere. Yeah, I, I hope he's able to to reach that goal because it was a horrific case, and it did. It well, there was some the cosmic justice in it all because eventually he did end up behind bars uh, for a very long time. He's out now. Um, and, you know, the other victim, uh, Ronald Goldman, um yeah. You know, his father uh, once remarked to me after the acquittal, he said, you wait and see, OJ will end up behind bars. And that, that was a pretty prescient prediction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move forward. So you get to Fox. How did you end up getting to Fox News? What was the what was the moment there that that, uh, you know, they just come see you and say, hey, Greg, you want to come join Fox? Well, when I was at Court TV, again, for about eight years, and I anchored their primetime show, um, I got offered a job at MSNBC, and it was a point in my life where I wanted to return to, to news, which I loved. Um, and so I uh, anchored a morning show uh, for know, three and a half years over at MSNBC, along with Chris Jansing, who was a wonderful intrepid journalist and uh, i didn't like it at the network and i left to go to uh fox news hmm. and um you know i've been there gosh at fox for what 21 20 22 years wow a long time yeah i anchored the news programs at at fox for the first i don't know 16 years got a little tired of it and decided to um sort of shift to being a legal analyst, take advantage of, uh, you know, my legal background as a trial lawyer. And I'm glad I did because it allowed me the opportunity to write some books. The first one, The Russia Hoax, um, and it was number one on the New York Times bestseller for a list for a month. And then the sequel, Witch Hunt, and then this latest book, uh, The Trial of the Century. Yeah, uh, you've had huge success in writing. Um, let's talk about the state of the country. You know, I, I wasn't paying attention to politics my whole life. You know, I've been in politics now and, and engaged at a, at a high level. It's hard to believe, but, you know, close to, close to 20 years now. But I have just never witnessed, even before I was in politics, after in politics, the state of the country is so divided. And... You know, I, I think it's too easy. It's too convenient for people to say, oh, it's both sides. Can't you all just get along? I don't buy that. Um, you know, there used to be a time when when I thought that um, we were all fighting for the same things. We just had different ways of getting there. But I don't believe that anymore. And And I see a Department of Justice that is so corrupt in that it's got a political persuasion and bent to it that, you know, we keep talking about the unequal application of justice, but I think the facts are there and they're 
they're there in, in numbers, in consistency that just, I mean, it, it continues to scare me that that this Department of Justice just cannot call balls and strikes until it figures out who's on which team. And and that, that it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. And it began when, you know, Trump first uh, decided to run for office. And, and we saw people at the FBI, top ranks, James Comey, the director, Andy McCabe, his assistant, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, Kevin Kleinsmith, Jim Baker. I mean, the whole gang at the right. FBI basically commandeered uh, the FBI as a political organization. And they began to pursue Trump without any credible evidence. And I made that argument, uh, you know, in my first book, which came out five years ago, confirmed most recently by Durham's report. Uh, and it it detailed, as my book did, these egregious acts of misfeasance, malfeasance, corruption for purely uh, political and vindictive purposes. Um, and, you know, it's not much better in Joe Biden's Department of Justice under the tenure of Merrick Garland. It, it would appear that everything he is doing has a political component to it. But most of all, I object to his running a protection racket uh, for Hunter Biden uh, in a myriad of multi-million dollar influence peddling schemes. And documents show that Joe Biden was an active participant. He was the cornerstone of it. How do you explain, Jason, a five-year-long investigation, okay. not a single criminal charge? I mean, a five-year investigation? I even heard, you know, a left-leaning legal analyst uh, on one of the other uh, cable channels say, it's disgraceful, it's absurd, and he's right. And there's only one explanation, political interference by Merrick Garland and Christopher Wray. And of course, the whistleblowers have told us that. Um, and so you know, I find this to be so objectionable that the only answer is, I think, for a, uh, a new president to come in and tear down the Department of Justice top to bottom and reconstitute a brand new uh, department, maybe split it up into different departments um, that actually are objective and neutral and not politically driven. And the same is certainly true of the FBI years ago. And I, I was, you know, the subject of great criticism when I said the FBI needs to be completely dismantled and rebuilt. And I still believe that. And I, I think that's the only solution. You are listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more right after this. You know, when Donald Trump descended the golden staircase and, you know, escalator, I don't think anybody thought, wow, this guy's really going to pull that off. I mean, I don't even know if, I mean, it's just, you can count on, you know, a few hands. Some people say, oh, I saw that the whole time. The whole mood of the country, the whole skepticism that Donald Trump, businessman, successful entrepreneur, television star, all of that, that he would actually pull this off. I mean, it was surprising right up until the day of the election. Um, and even then, I think Hillary Clinton was, you know, measuring the <laughs> for the drapes in the, you know, to move back into the White House. But 
why do you think they went to such great lengths? What was it that was scaring them from the moment he said, yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to run for president? Well, the the FBI in particular um, was deeply alarmed at the polling numbers. And, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's numbers started to go down in 2016 yeah. um, when her email scandal really uh, got a great deal of public attention. She clearly violated uh, the law by having classified documents in her home server, which was hacked hacked by the Chinese. Read the inspector general's report. The yeah. Chinese, you know, put a put a program on her system so they got classified documents, you know, whenever they were sent. If the Chinese did it, the Russians did it. And, you know, the FBI knew all of this and they were worried about it. And so they decided they were going to target Donald Trump. They knew that the Hillary Clinton funded uh, anti-Trump dossier was utterly phony. It was laughable. Uh, but they used it as a pretext to try to stop Trump's campaign. Uh, it, it didn't work. So once he was elected, they doubled down. Yeah. And they hid from the American public, Congress. Uh, they certainly hid from the new president the fact that there was no evidence of collusion. And, and they you know, they used it to escalate their investigation to try to destroy him and drive him from office. Um, and, you know, it didn't work, but it did great damage to the nation. And it probably deterred Trump from being able to accomplish more of his agenda. Yeah, no, I think it drove him from you know, he had a constitutional duty and responsibility to lead the Department of Justice, and yet he was very hands-off, and I experienced that personally, and it was, I, I, it's too bad that that's the way that went down. I understand why he made that decision to keep at arm's length, um, but, I, you know, part of my theory here is that America didn't want to elect Hillary Clinton, but I also think they they saw Donald Trump as a disruptive force, unlike somebody else that maybe was more predictable in their political, in their politics. He wasn't going to play ball. He didn't need a business card. He didn't need the income. He didn't need the fame. He already had all right. those things. And so that is a bigger threat to the bureaucracy, the deep state, if you will, um, that I think that's, I think that was a big genesis of what was going on there. And, and one of the reasons they were, you know, hyper-partisan and boy, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall when James Comey uh, has to get together with President-elect Trump and say, uh, sir, you need to know there's a document. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that had to be just hilarious, all the gyrations that Comey was going through to essentially lie to Donald Trump. You know, uh, Comey is many things, arrogant, vainglorious, but he's also malicious and conniving. Right. Uh, devious. Uh, you know, if you look up the word devious in the dictionary, there ought to be a photograph of <laughs> of James Comey. He's two faced. Um, you know, he knew when he went to meet with President elect Donald Trump that the whole P tape uh, story was uh, completely bogus. But he, you know, he tried to use that uh, to entrap Trump. And of course, Trump didn't fall for it. Yeah. Um, you know, Comey, I can fault Donald Trump for a couple of things. Should have fired James Comey. 
uh, you know, five minutes after he was sworn in as president. Um, that's mistake number one. Mistake number two, appointing uh, the most incompetent attorney general in American history and Jeff Sessions. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, three, a lot of people voted for him because he promised to drain the swamp. He didn't drain the swamp, but but only because the swamp went after him with a vengeance and falsely accused him of colluding with Vladimir Putin in, in the bowels of the Kremlin. Right, right. Um, and and that really handcuffed Trump for a very long. He couldn't go after the tr- the swamp as he promised because the swamp came after him first. And you're right when you observe. You know, uh, he had to keep an arm's distance. He kept being accused of obstruction every time he fired somebody like uh, James Comey, which is not obstruction at all. President has plenary powers to fire anybody uh, in the executive branch for the most part, including the FBI director. And Comey admitted it himself. But, you know, the swamp is so poisonous and they're very clever. And, yeah. you know, they mounted a, you know, a very difficult campaign against Donald Trump for four years. That's true. It, I, yeah, it, it'll be fascinating to see how now the Democrats are working to rewrite history. And so we got to be vigilant on how this all went down. And look, so much of it is playing out in real time right now uh, here today. But um it's time for me to transition a little bit here, Greg. And uh, I mean, from this conversation to start talking about some of the rapid questions. I hope you don't, I don't, uh, I hope you don't mind. Even Uh, if you do, do I'm going to ask you anyway. 10 second answers. (laughs) (laughs) You can, you can wax on a little bit, but um, yeah, you get bonus points for, for how rapid you answer the question. Ready? Yep. First concert you attended. James Taylor. Uh, and I was uh, I think I was like a freshman in high school at the Greek theater in uh, Los Angeles. Pretty cool. And uh, my sister had to drive me uh, because I didn't have a driver's license. <laughs> Were you on a date or was she your date? I was on a date. Yeah. <laughs> your sister drove you. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good first date to a James Taylor concert. I that that's legit. I haven't heard that one before. So he had just come out with his first album, Sweet Baby James. Oh, that's that's pretty cool. Uh, what's your favorite vegetable? I hate all vegetables that are green. <laughs> um, they're not supposed to be edible for human beings. That's my theory. Um, so I don't. You know, there really isn't a. Uh, you know, occasionally I'll eat some asparagus if it's not overcooked. See, I like them crispy. I like them burned. Maybe that's the disguise, the taste. I, I saw this uh, bumper sticker once, Greg, and it said, I'm a vegetarian because I hate vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty funny, right? You think about, oh, he just wants to eat them all day long. It's just because I hate them. I got yeah, to eat good. them. <laughs> it's just different. Caught my attention. That's for sure. Um, what was your high school mascot? Well, they were the Titans, and, um, you know, I grew up in San Marino, so San Marino High School Titans. I don't think we really, you know, this is back in the, you know, 
I started high school in 1969. So, and we, they didn't really have mascots at my school, but, you know, we were the Titans. This is legit. I mean, probably revived by Denzel Washington and the, you know, the, the, <laughs> but, uh, well, there's probably know. about a thousand Titan, you know, high school mascots. Yeah, but it's, it's bold. It's strong. It's, you know, I like it. That's good. I, I want to give you this opportunity. You're going to have dinner with somebody. It can be anybody in history. And you're going to call up the family and say, guess what, family? We got a special guest tonight. And they're going to come over and break some bread. We're going to share a meal. And uh, if you can invite anybody in history to come break bread with you, dead or alive, who would it be? You know, Abraham Lincoln, I just so deeply admired him, um, his intellect, his courage, especially when you consider that, you know, he never went to college or law school, um, but passed the bar and became a fantastic lawyer. But he, more than anything else, he became one of the greatest thinkers in American history. Yeah. Um, and from such humble beginnings. And uh, yeah, that, that would be number one. Number two would be Ulysses S. Grant, who I think was also uh, an equally fascinating character from humble background. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that would be fun. What can you do? What's your, what can you, what unique talent does Greg Jarrett bring to the world? I'm talking like, you know, I can uh, knit a sweater with my toes or I can juggle or I, I don't know. What, what, what's, what unique talent do you have that nobody knows about? I have no unique talent. I wish I did. <laughs> um, about 10 years ago, I took up um, painting landscapes on really? canvas. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you might be able to sell my best work for 50 bucks. Um, unlike Hunter Biden, who's what, <laughs> selling say, six yeah. figure, you know, kindergarten finger painting. And, and nobody quite knows who's buying it. My guess is the Chinese or you know, the Russians and the Ukrainians, his benefactors. I have no special talent. And I so wish I did. What's your superpower? Now, I believe everybody has a superpower. It's the thing that they do really well. Like, you know, that, like, yeah, I'm really good at that. Just always have been. I'm good at that. What, what's yours? You know, uh, I don't think I have any superpower. Oh, well, you're being good. a little humble. Everybody's got one. I mean, is yeah. it, look, I can synthesize an, uh, an argument down into 30 seconds. Is it like, I can read something and comprehend it start to finish. I mean, w there's got to be something, Greg. You, you're not, you didn't have the success that you had. New York Times bestselling author, all the success on television and legal analysis by being just a, you know, regular Joe Schmo. I can sleep anywhere, anytime. Um, <laughs> that I'm, is a superpower. I am really uh, proficient, top-notch at taking naps. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good yeah. talent to have because, you know, like I'm really good at flying uh, on airplanes and falling asleep. A lot of people I know, they can't fall asleep. I can't stay awake on an airplane. Like I, yeah. I get on a plane in a confined space. They put a seatbelt on me, put on my headphones, put on the music, and I am out. Yeah, I, I'm pretty good at that. You know, uh, when uh, when we... I was at the outset of the Iraq war. I was there from late April till uh, 
uh, the beginning of July. And, you know, you didn't, you didn't get much sleep. Right. So, uh, because, you know, you're doing stories all day and then doing, you know, you're well, doing you got to do a shots. hit like every 30 minutes and that's hard, yeah. hard on right. the body. And yeah. So, you know, you, you might get like three, four hours sleep a night, but wow. I made up for it by taking, you know, in between hits, I would take <laughs> these uh, power naps and I'm really skilled at power naps. So that's it. <laughs> that's good. All right. Last question. Uh, uh, two questions. Sorry. Pineapple on pizza. Yes or no? No. Yeah. See, we like Greg Jarrett. Judges love that answer. Good answer. It's the right answer. It's the only answer, only acceptable answer. <laughs> uh, last question. Uh, best advice you ever got? Best advice I ever got? Yeah. You know, my, um, my father taught me never give up, never give in. Perseverance, determination, and hard work win the day invariably. Yeah. And I think that's true. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. Greg Jarrett, everybody, he is the author of Trial of the Century. He's got some other books, too. But the one that's new, the one that's out there today, Trial of the Century by Greg Jarrett. Uh, you can find it anywhere people sell books. It's an, an important story, and um, it should be very illuminating. So thank you for sharing that and your kind of life and how we how we got here. And uh Appreciate you joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. Now, is it my turn to ask you a bunch of questions? Oh, look at the time here, Greg. Woo. <laughs> time has run out, my friend. Because uh, I got the goods on Jason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, too bad we ran out of time. Yeah. All right, Greg, Funny thank you so much for joining us. Really do appreciate it. Always my pleasure. Good talking to you, Jason. Thanks for having me. All right, I can't thank uh, Greg Jarrett enough. Such a good guy um, and fascinating book. So I hope you have a chance to... To read it, look at it, you know, summer's kind of concluding up, but you always need a good book as you snuggle up and uh, we turn the, the corner into the fall. Can you believe that? We're going to get ready. Summer's going to come to an end. The, we, the air's going to change. Football's going to be in the air. But, hey, you want to snuggle up and read a good book? I bet that's uh, – I you're going to – I've started it. Like I said, it's good uh, so far, but i got to finish it. So – all right. I want to thank uh, him for all of his time. I also hope you can subscribe to this podcast. Hope you can rate the podcast. That would be really helpful. If you could rate the podcast, really do appreciate it. I also want to remind people you can listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week. Stay with us and uh, appreciate you joining us on this Jason and the House podcast. I'm Jason Chapitz. Have a great day. <laughs>